Welcome, Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we are joined by Dr. Candace Hatcher Solis to discuss her career, brain stimulation, and the importance of inclusivity in the workspace. In three, two, one. Dr. Candace Hatcher Solis, thank you for joining us on Lab Life today. Uh, hi, Kenneth. Thanks for having me. So we've had the chance to talk to you beforehand, and you've got some really cool stuff for our listeners. But before we kind of cut into your career, uh, how you got to this point, and what you do, we had a question for you. So something Michelle and I kind of talked about before, we're not as familiar with well, really what goes on up here in our brain. And we understand that um, you do a lot of cognitive studies and understand it a lot better than us. So can you give us kind of a crash course, almost a, a brain 101 for some of us, view our, our viewers, and us who may not really understand how it all works up there? Sure, I'd love to. Cognition is a broad term that refers to a lot of the processes that we use when we're thinking, uh, such as learning, memory, uh, understanding, and when we're communicating, perception, reasoning, and problem solving. It's basically a lot of the processes that we're going to use during this podcast today. So you're thinking and formulating and asking questions, and I'm listening and understanding your questions and formulating my answers. One aspect of cognition that I'm particularly interested in is memory. In the field of neuroscience, a lot of what is known about memory came from research on one individual's brain and behavior known as patient HM. He suffered from debilitating seizures and sought treatment for relief. At that time, it was thought that brain processes are localized to one singular site in the brain. And so uh, lobotomies were used to remove uh, parts of the brain to treat uh, mental illness and disorders. Patient HM received a lobotomy that removed uh, his hippocampus to uh, alleviate his seizures. When he recovered, uh, he no longer had seizures, but doctors uh, soon realized that he lost the ability to form lasting new memories. Studying a patient HM provided the basis for our current understanding of memory and the brain regions that are involved. So when memories are formed, there are several steps that take place. So first you have a sensory information that is perceived and temporarily stored in neurons or brain cells in the cortex, which is in the uppermost uh, part of the brain. It travels to the hippocampus, which is a lower structure. And there you have a specialized uh, proteins that work to strengthen synaptic connections and memory consolidation happens. After that, if the memory is uh, stored over a period of a few days, um, then you have connections uh, from the hippocampus that then transfer the memory back to the cortex for permanent storage. So going back to patient HM, his uh, short-term memory was intact because he still had his frontal cortex and he could perceive and take in a limited amount of information for a short period of time. So you could hold a conversation with him that lasted a few minutes and he could respond. However, since his hippocampus was removed, he could not form long-term memories and store a lot of new information permanently. So without the hippocampus, his 
memories could not be consolidated and therefore they were forgotten. So going back to my previous example, you could hold a conversation with patient HM for uh, several minutes and then leave the room and walk out and then wait 10 or 15 minutes or so, and then walk back in the room and engage him again. And it would be like his brain reset. He would have no recollection of meeting you previously or having a conversation with you. From studying patient HM, we learned a lot about a short-term and long-term memory, as well as the areas of the brain that are involved in these processes, like the cortex and the hippocampus. And he's one of the uh, most famous case studies in neuroscience. That's incredible. Like that, That's not a case I'd heard of before. And the fact they could really have such an, uh, a close and personal tie to it and really understand how memory works in someone is... I mean, that's something, again, I, I didn't realize we really had access to. How were they able to kind of track where these memories were going? Because you mentioned all the pathways and connections in the head. Was that through scans or how did they know that was happening? They were able to uh, look at his brain and study his brain. And so his brain has been one of the most studied brains to go and look at what was actually happening in his brain. And they were able to scan his brain and they were able to associate changes that were able to happen in his brain with uh, different behaviors to also learn what he could and couldn't do. So in addition to learning a lot about explicit or declarative memory, as I mentioned before, with the short and long-term um, aspects of memory, he we were able to also uh, learn a lot about implicit uh, memory or procedural memory. And so the major difference there being that with declarative memory, that's uh, memorizing a lot of facts um, like you would if you were taking a course versus procedural or implicit memory, which is remembering like how to ride a bike or, or tie your shoe. And so what was interesting is that through studying his brain and behaviors, we were able to further learn that there's a big difference between explicit and implicit memory. And uh, with implicit memory, you have the basal ganglia part of the brain and uh, the cerebellum that's involved. And interestingly, that was intact with patient HM. And so he could still learn and, and that way and remember. Oh my gosh, that's, I had no idea that I thought it all, like the hippocampus would have tied it all together. So there really is other uh, areas of the brain, you could say that as long as those are intact, certain memories or actions, can you said can be learned still or at least pulled back from memory? It's different types of memory. And so in these different regions of the brain, whether it's the cortex and the hippocampus, when you're trying to remember facts or procedural uh, memory with implicit memory, that's more like your unconscious memory store. Wow, it's such an expansive world to think of uh, really what goes on in your head. So um, taking a step back from that, can you tell the audience what really got you into this field? Like what brought your interest in working with the human brain? The brain is the most complex organ in the body, and so it's involved in the nervous system, and it plays a crucial role coordinating the body's functions. 
the field of neuroscience has made significant strides in understanding the many different functions of the brain, but there's still so much that's not known. The complexity of the brain makes it exciting to me, and I'm interested in investigating a lot of the unknowns and contributing findings that could advance the field of neuroscience. Yeah, definitely trying to find like a, a very big topic area or something challenging and going after it, and uh, especially with the human brain, from what I've heard speaking with you and others, like it is definitely a lot of frontier yet left to be covered. So is there anything in particular that... Um, well, kind of going into what you do now with the lab that you're working toward are kind of your goals with trying to find out more about the human brain. Yes. So I'm the team lead for the neurobiology of cognitive performance and the 7-Eleven human performance wing of AFRL. And my research focus is understanding the biological pathways that can be leveraged to enhance or sustain uh, cognitive performance for airmen, whether that's learning and memory or alleviating the detrimental effects of stress. We are currently focused on how uh, non-invasive brain stimulation or peripheral nerve stimulation can be utilized to improve performance. My work in particular examines the effect of stimulation at the molecular level to further understand how electrical stimulation affects the brain to optimize its beneficial effects. If we understand how stimulation is affecting the brain, then we can um, more precisely uh, target the regions of the brain that are mediating the, these effects, and in particular, the uh, pathways that are mediating these effects to optimize the effects on performance. Additionally, knowing the pathways that are involved in the uh, beneficial effects of stimulation will allow us to explore potential synergistic effects with other technologies or uh, interventions and combining uh, brain stimulation with other technologies and by knowing the pathways that involve, we could potentially have a greater effect with uh, combining different technologies versus just using one alone. That's amazing. So with this technology then, this kind of, uh, you mentioned this brain stimulation, is the goal then you mentioned that not only to make, let's say, airmen, for instance, more efficient at their job, something we remember talking to you in a pre-interview, you said it could also help with stress. So is this a dual function or are these two different things altogether? In my work, I look at non-invasive brain stimulation, in particular transcranial direct current stimulation, but also I have been examining uh, peripheral nerve stimulation and in particular electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve. Um, with vagal nerve stimulation, we're activating the uh, parasympathetic nervous system and that can counteract some of the effects of activating our sympathetic nervous system. Our sympathetic nervous system is activated during a stress. It's part of our stress response, the well-known fight or flight response. An example is um, when you're really stressed out and you take nice, long, deep breaths to calm yourself down, what you're actually doing is stimulating your vagus nerve. And so what we're interested in doing in the lab is trying to use a current to more precisely uh, stimulate the vagus nerve to relieve some of the uh, detrimental effects of stress. That's something I never would have considered. So would this be the same use then as this brain stimulation where you would actually have, um, you said, current stimulating the nerve itself to help like kind of promote that? 
So in particular with vagal nerve stimulation, again, an end use ideally is uh, non-invasive. And so you would be applying electrical current to the vagus nerve. And then from there, there are afferent projections um, from the nerve uh, to the brain. And with the projections from the vagus nerve, you um, have um, a circuitry in the brain through the nucleus tractus uh, solitarius, um, then to the locus aurelius, and, and from there uh, to the hippocampus and uh, to the cortex. So again, this is another uh, method of uh, stimulation, um, not directly to the brain as with other methods, but uh, another way that you are in effect uh, modulating the brain. And that's uh, kind of like you said, too, it's amazing to think that we can have, like, using some of these non-invasive techniques, give that almost that breath of fresh air, that calming breath, kind of bringing yourself down from a heightened scenario. On the performance side, uh, kind of dipping into that field, you mentioned that you also had, you're working on these non-invasive techniques to help really help cognitive performance. Is the idea around this then that somebody would wear a, a helmet? What does this look like when they actually do this um, stimulation treatment? With my current research, I uh, do a lot of basic science research that provides foundational knowledge and discoveries that can help transition technologies to the warfighter. And so, as you mentioned, I envision the end goal of my research would be using a device. Uh, ideally, it would be seamless integration um, with a, a wearable uh, device in a training or an operational environment that has been uh, ergonomically designed to maximize end-user acceptance and compliance. And you could imagine wearing a headset that delivers stimulation during specific time points during your training or a task that you're completing that ends up augmenting your long-term retention and your performance in the task. So uh, I was just wondering for our viewers and for me, you've kind of dipped into uh, what like this uh, brain stimulation can look like, um, how the pathways work. Um, I was wondering if maybe we could know um, how, like what kind of training or what would it look like using this? You can imagine that you're in a career field for the Air Force, like intelligence, surveillance, or reconnaissance, and your job is to uh, stare at a screen for a long period of time, and you're looking for targets and um, maybe minute changes to identify targets, and your ability to correctly identify these targets could have dire consequences. This job is really important, but it can be tiring and your performance could decline over time. So with non-invasive uh, brain stimulation or peripheral nerve stimulation, it's a technology that can be used to sustain or enhance your performance by increasing arousal, attention, learning, and memory. And um, along those lines, this technology could be used in many different uh, Air Force career fields. It could be used to accelerate uh, training for pilots to meet the growing demand for the Air Force. It could even be used to enhance performance for our special operations community that deal with numerous psychological and physiological stressors that can be detrimental to their performance. And so just thinking about it, if you could enhance uh, performance or output by 20% across a career field, that would be a game changer and uh, definitely impact the mission for the Air Force. 
Absolutely. I mean, you perfectly answered my next question, which was how this kind of ties into the Air Force mission. And it's amazing how it sounds like this technology can not only help with resiliency, but keeping that uh, alertness and keeping people uh, really on ready for the mission ahead of them. Whether, like you said, it could be somebody working at an office out in the field operations for training, like that really is all encompassing in many ways. But is there any big level of integration you guys already have planned, like you mentioned, moving ahead? Or is this still, like you said, very much the basic research level? Uh, we're, we're looking ahead a little bit. We're kind of focusing on really the, the testing right now. So with the work that I'm currently doing, it is a basic science research. So um, again, uh, understanding the underlying uh, mechanisms, but I do collaborate closely with colleagues that are working to rapidly transition this technology for the warfighter. And so what I'm able to do is work in parallel with them and um, transition knowledge products um, to, to help optimize the effects of this technology for airmen. Brilliant. Uh, so going along that then, kind of along that train, so there's a lot of work you're doing here with the lab and a lot of really cool stuff in the terms of like the uh, cognitive field and this work transition and uh, a lot of the uh, the stimulation stuff you just spoke on is is incredible. But if somebody wants to do something similar to you, kind of work in this field, can you walk through kind of what your education track was, how you got here to the lab first to kind of get to this point? Sure. I received my undergraduate degree from the College of William and Mary in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. Go Tribe! Uh, for graduate school, I didn't move far. I attended um, Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. Go Rams! I completed my graduate work in uh, biomedical sciences and I obtained a PhD in uh, physiology and biophysics. Um, during my PhD studies, I examined uh, therapeutics for uh, Parkinson's disease at the cellular level and used electrophysiology and uh, biochemical assays to examine the effects on protein targets and cellular signaling. While I was a graduate student, I received a grant from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, and I um, was able to complete my graduate studies at the National Institutes of Health in Baltimore, Maryland. And so there, I was able to extend some of the molecular work that I had done previously in my graduate studies and examine uh, the effects of these therapeutics on behavior and also on a neurotransmitter release in the brain. Okay, gotcha. That's, I was wondering how, uh, where the original connection was, and that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So did you really see yourself working at the lab when you started uh, off in your educational career? Is this where you wanted to end up? I always knew that I wanted to stay in research. Um, I love research and enjoy bench level work, working in the lab. So I'm able to uh, work with the brain to find out the proteins that are changing as a response to stimulation, but also have the opportunity to interact with research with human subjects to provide relevance to translate the work that I'm uh, exploring down at the uh, molecular level all the way up to, to humans. 
and that's it's cool to see that track how yeah starting off with that like you know the molecular level has really i mean prepared you for this position you said almost every step of the way that you really had a lot of the pieces of the puzzle and the fact that you can start building at this level with afrl and have a, a lot of the tools and personnel to help is is brilliant um so would you say there's any one mentor or somebody when you were growing up that really helped you get ready for this position like really got you prepared i would uh, say that I had um, uh, several mentors uh, along my educational uh, journey, but I think all the way back to being in graduate school, I was taking additional science courses, but not necessarily on the PhD track. And so I was the uh, quiet graduate student that was uh, just taking my courses and loving learning about science and it was actually a professor that met with me after class um, and invited me to come to his lab and he explained his research and some of the work that he was doing and invited me to come shadow people in his lab and uh, through that experience I learned uh, more about the PhD track and decided that that was what I wanted to pursue for my career. So that really was a defining moment and for my uh, eventual career. And he ended up being my uh, PhD advisor. And so um, I um, went to his lab for a tour and ended up staying six years. <laughs> so yeah. I, I really enjoyed uh, learning from him. Uh, he was a great teacher and he was very supportive of me as a student and so as I've uh, transitioned in my career uh, to have a similar status at AFRL, um, mentoring has become very important to me because I would really like to um, be involved in engaging, teaching, and, and supporting that next generation of scientists. I think you hit it right in the head there. That's such an important thing um, in any field, but especially STEM from what I've seen, like having that uh, that voice in the beginning or someone to help get you on the track you're looking for or answer important questions others may not be able to. Um, you kind of mentioned now that mentoring is still so important to you. Um, so you, do you take in a lot of either interns or other uh, people in your workspace that you help mentor to kind of prepare? Um, yes, yeah, so I take advantage of um, all the opportunities that are presented to me for mentoring because I really enjoy it. I find it rewarding to help uh, students along in their uh, scientific progression and in their career. So I have mentored everywhere from high school students to uh, undergraduate students, graduate students, uh, medical students, and even postdoctoral fellows. Um, at, here at AFRL, I've uh, been a mentor with the Legacy Program, Wright Scholars, Goodwill Ambassadors. I have an adjunct faculty position at Wright State. I've been the co-director for a thesis for graduate students. I've uh, mentored uh, medical students with their research projects, and I uh, mentor the postdoctoral fellows that I have working with me in my lab, and I, I truly enjoy it. So uh, you mentioned too, like uh, a lot of the most important stuff is not only invigorating young minds, but really uh, making sure people are prepared for what lies ahead. What keeps bringing you back wanting to keep mentoring and uh, helping out these kids? I love seeing a student's progression from the moment they enter the lab to when they leave. There's almost like a switch that happens with students where in the very beginning, you're training them and you're feeding them a lot of information 
and um, teaching them about the work that's going along in the lab. And I love seeing the progression where they go from having very little knowledge of what's going on in the lab and not as much training and some of the techniques that we use, but I love seeing them progress in their confidence, um, learning techniques, becoming independent, learning the work that's going on in the lab and having that switch that happens in their brain from just taking in a lot of information to start to contribute to the lab when they have their own ideas to advance the research. And I think it's different in, in every student that you have, their journey, but I just love being a part of that and having a small piece of their success. That's uh, what a good way to put it too. Like that is really like such an amazing part to be a teacher to help not only impart that knowledge, but to see them grow like that, that has to feel amazing. So uh, something I myself need to get more into, of course, better at mentorship. And that inspiration may have just kicked me to a lot of, uh, you know, of our listeners and, you know, getting into drive, helping out people where we can. Um, but speaking of uh, really great achievements here and really cool things to be proud of, um, recently you were the recipient of a pretty uh, prestigious award. Um, you're the uh, recipient of the Women of Color STEM Technical Innovations in Government Award. Um, and I wanted to say, first of all, congratulations. Um, here from everyone at AFRL and our team, that is such a, a cool honor. Um, can you kind of talk about what went into that award and uh, what it means to you? Uh, thank you. I'm honored to be the recipient of that award. The nomination process involved compiling uh, several documents or a submission package, and it included submitting my resume, a document summarizing my uh, technical achievements and contributions to the Air Force mission, and uh, my package really focused on the work that I've been doing with peripheral nerve stimulation and some of the hardware configurations that I've had to do to bring that capability to my lab. Uh, it included letters of recommendation, um, all my peer-reviewed publications, and um, a description of their impact. The final package was massive. It was approximately 100 pages. And so I thank my uh, supervisor and leadership for helping put that together and, and supporting my nomination. I feel very honored to receive this award, um, not only for the technical contributions, but in particular because it is from uh, the woman of color. And so uh, it means a lot to me to inspire and motivate other underrepresented groups to enter and, and join the STEM field. And I feel like with this award, I can uh, combine that with my passion for mentoring and really use that as a platform to let other people know that I did it and, and you can do it too. And a hundred pages, like that's, it's extensive. Like that, that's a lot of work that your team, are you able to put out there and especially since the team was able to help back you up and support that that's wonderful um i meant to say before this all started like congratulations from all of us at afrl and like everyone i help represent like that is such a cool honor and such an amazing award but i want to touch on something you mentioned there there's a big thing especially recently talking about uh inclusiveness and like really bringing in a lot of people whether they be you know people of color minorities and more especially in the stem fields uh, predominantly dominated by a lot of white males uh, what can AFRL FRL and the Department of Defense as a whole, in your mind, do better to be more inclusive and to be more uh, cognizant of like bringing in uh, people who may be minorities and beyond? Well, part of the Air Force 2030 strategy is recruiting and retaining a diverse and talented workforce. And I honestly believe that 
for the United States to maintain its competitive edge in the world for innovation. Um, we need to tap into the entire talent pool that is available for STEM, and that includes uh, underrepresented groups. Um, as far as diversity in the workforce, I think that will come with actively recruiting to, um, academic institutions or conferences, um, professional organizations that have a large population of underrepresented groups in STEM. We have to go where they are. For inclusion, I think that includes supporting organizations that are focused on uh, professional development, networking, and support for underrepresented groups to retain a diverse workforce. For example, I'm involved with Air Force Women in Science and Engineering, and through that group, uh, early in my career, I learned about resources that were available to me as a government employee that would help me as a working mother and a scientist. That's important. Yeah, that's a big thing to hit is knowing, like you said, even just like uh, different groups where you can find not only similar interests, but things you may not have known existed. So I think having a network or at least access to saying, hey, you have all of these resources out there that you may not have heard of uh, would be a huge help, especially for new people joining the workforce here at the DOD. And with that same train then, or along the same train, I should say, um, what advice would you have then for, uh, let's say, uh, people of color or people or minorities who are looking to join the STEM field, uh, especially young women looking to kind of, uh, you know, get in here maybe right out of college or even leaving high school? Thank you for that question. I would tell them, don't be intimidated and go for it. If STEM is your passion, stick with it and you can do it. Find mentors early in your career that can help you along your journey. I would also say um, to not be deterred by adversity that you might face um, because you can overcome it and have a fulfilling and rewarding career because I have. Um, I'm so happy I stayed the course uh, to be where I am today. And that's a beautiful message for those out there. So remember, like everyone who's listening right now, there is so many resources for you out there, so many great mentors like Candace here and others who are fighting for you. So please live your dream and be the best you. We at the Research Lab would love to have you. So we know a lot of these people who may be interested in coming into these fields, maybe even into cognitive studies itself. Um, do you have any book recommendations or uh, any things people can do to kind of read up before they start looking into your field? Uh, yes. So um, I love reading. Uh, my husband, who's also a, a neuroscientist, and I, we have amassed uh, quite the collection of nonfiction-related neuroscience books. That's cool. Um, for the listeners out there, there was actually a book that was published recently entitled uh, Patient HM. And what's really interesting about the book is it was written by the grandson of the neurosurgeon that performed the lobotomy on Patient HM. Oh, wow. And the book goes through a lot of the uh, scientific breakthroughs and discoveries that were made possible um, by studying um, patient HM's brain and behavior, um, but it also goes into some of the controversy um, that was surrounding that procedure at the time. And that uh, ties back to the beginning of the podcast. So people want to look more into what we discussed early with cognition and memory and uh, with patient HM, that's the perfect way to do it. So great way to start people. So make sure you check that out. 
Is there any kind of like, let's say technologies or researchers or even studies that you think uh, really helped inspire you to get to where you are now? Um, we'd love to ask this question to our, our guests here to kind of see like if there's anything Air Force related or even stuff you looked in your studies that people could also dive into uh, or maybe look into a certain researcher to kind of get more motivation. There are several scientists that I've drawn inspiration from, but one in particular is Dr. Mae Jemison. So as a young girl, I learned about Dr. Jemison. She's an American uh, engineer, physician, professor, former NASA astronaut. Uh, she's won numerous awards, is known as the uh, first African-American female to travel into space. As a child, I learned about this intelligent and talented person in STEM that looked like me and someone that I could identify with. So here's this woman doing these amazing things. And as a child uh, interested in science uh, from a very young age, seeing her success uh, made me feel like I could grow up and achieve uh, some of the same things. And it meant a lot to me to see a representation of myself in learning throughout my STEM courses. And so that inspired me to continue my passion for science. In reading more about Dr. Jemison, she's very passionate about recruiting minorities to STEM fields and has done a lot of work to recruit underrepresented groups into those disciplines. And like her, uh, personally, I I'm also motivated to be an inspiration for others and, and help recruit others to STEM. That's what a great way to tie it together too, to see, to become the hero that you loved as a kid. Like that's so, that, that's amazing. So uh, we've definitely featured her a lot in a lot of our content because she is an inspiration to many people. and The work she did is absolutely incredible. Uh, so that, that's a great one, folks. Make sure to write that one down too. So uh, now that we're talking about, you know, great heroes and a lot of uh, a good round, a way to round this out. Um, is there any other pieces of information, anything on uh, anything from brain stimulation or any other books you'd like to recommend to people before we cut out here? I would say that I think uh, brain stimulation is really exciting. And I feel like right now we're just on the cusp of understanding uh, the different effects of brain stimulation, uh, why we see enhancement in some tasks and not others, but also uh, why we see certain enhancement in, in some individuals versus other individuals. And, and I'm really excited to be in this field and uh, contribute more to answering those questions. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll be excited to speak with you more in the future. <laughs> Thank you. It's my pleasure. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.